Okay, so we're back to cracks in postmodernity with a very special guest, Dr. Charles Camosi, who has written many books, including just some of the many. For the Love of Animals, Beyond the Abortion Wars, Resisting Throwaway Culture, Losing Our Dignity. You can look up all the others on his website and is currently teaching at Creighton School of Medicine, but also was my professor at Fordham University. So this is why we're very excited to have him on. So thank you for coming. Of course, Stephen, it's good to be with you and in this new way of exchanging. You just told me that you're moving on to the next level teaching as an adjunct and uh, at, at the college level, and I couldn't be more proud of you. So great to be with you. Thank you. Yes. So, um, so yeah, you you've written about all kinds of topics, but what I would like to talk about now is the breakdown of the two-party system in the U.S. You've written a lot about politics, about the divide that we're seeing, the increasing divide in our country, and all the ideological divisions. So, yeah, can you start by talking about why you you think this the system of politics, the the party politics in the country is breaking down? What are the sources of these divisions and all that? Well, specifically thinking about the two-party system, I mean, at a very basic level, it's just the fact that the political, social, moral reality um, that people are facing, even within single issues, like say race or abortion, simply don't fit into a binary um, either or answer. In fact, if you were just talking to somebody who knew nothing about politics or ethics or or anything like that, if you said, if you told them the problem and you told the, them the various uh, permutations and options and complexities of the problem, then you said, and by the way, our culture tends to handle these things by, by saying you can either take this position or that position. Okay. Um, they, they, they would obviously look at you like you had two heads. Well, wh why? why? Why would you be offered only those, those two? So at a very basic level, it's just the fact that it, it doesn't work. It, people don't think of themselves um, as choosing between two different options. And, and the way it plays out, as far as I can tell, in, in many contexts is they don't, in fact, think there are two options, but they pick a side that they hate more than the other side mm -hmm. and kind of define themselves by opposition to that side and say, you know, I don't know what I am. Maybe I'm not a Republican. You know, maybe I'm not a Democrat. Um, uh, I don't know what I am, but I know I hate that group really, really a lot. And I'm going to, define myself in opposition to that group. Um, you know, we could say more about that, but I guess that's that's where I see things um, in a very basic level right now. Yeah, so one of the things that you talk about in resisting throwaway culture is that a lot of this division comes from a disconnect from the individual, from the basic realities of neighborhood, of tradition, even of our own bodies. And I think part of it is just like the breakdown of First, local level community political affairs, like most of what we're focusing on is on the national level, on this bigger scale that we're physically removed from, but also just basic things like social media using the internet disconnects us from the people in our immediate surroundings. And again, from really being in touch with our own bodies ourselves. Um, so can you say more about that disconnect of the individual from the immediate kind of everyday realities that they're in? Yeah, there, there are obviously multiple reasons for that and you you suggested some of them but maybe again to just get down to basics or fundamentals it does um it does primarily reside i think in a kind of idolatry right an idolatry of national politics especially maybe especially since 2015 it was there before but mm -hmm. um 
and maybe the super fuel of that kind of idolatry is the smartphone and social media and especially um, Twitter and YouTube and other vehicles using algorithms to kind of capture our attention and especially again our disgust or our opprobrium or our hate for the quote other side or the side that we define it in ourselves in opposition to mm-hmm. uh, and when that you know kind of idolatrous way of being in the world manifests itself it manifests itself in precisely the ways you describe right the kinds of um, you know intermediate organizations and clubs and churches and local communities that would have pushed back against the kind of simplistic polarization or defining by opposition um, tend to tend to go by the wayside or at least get um, put in their place relative to uh, the idolatry of the national politics. And so it's become a cliche in my circles to say this, but it's still worth saying, you know, you used to sit uh, next to somebody you really disagreed with at church, for instance, or, you know, at the local VFW or uh, on the bleachers at the local Little League game. Mm-hmm. Um, but now the great sword coupled with the great algorithm um, uh, 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 mix um, and sorting uh, has produced a very, very different kind of way of being in the world. Mm. Yeah, and I, I, what I'm starting to see, especially around uh, amongst people my own age, that politics is starting to fill this kind of existential vacuum that's created by the lack of, I guess, religious experience, family, communal, cultural belonging. And again, like it's, it's what happens to the people's political positions becomes a kind of performance of, you know, them projecting their psychological wounds, their existential insecurity, attempting to find some sense of belonging, some kind of meaning or purpose. But again, like their position is very much disconnected from what they're living in their everyday lives. Um, so people can be posting on the internet about all these social issues about these moral issues, but what's happening in your everyday life? It's usually not integrated, like your position is not integrated into how you're actually living. So you see that the breakdown of the local community, of the family, all these things, like makes politics into something much bigger than it ever was meant to be, you know? And especially national politics. I and mean, we used to say all politics is local. And I just think that's, people still say that. <laughs> I just don't think that's true. Uh, I mean, it can be true, but in a, in a general sense, uh, it's often not true. So many local things are now nationalized for the reasons um, that you just described. And, uh, maybe a little bit later, we might talk about this in more detail, but we, I think we see that um, post-Roe, post-Dobbs, right? Where maybe in a healthier environment, it would be um, kind of situation where we could have the laboratory of the states in a very serious way and take some time for Louisiana to do things differently than California and, you know, Ohio to do things differently than New Jersey. But so many of these things, especially with money and especially again with the internet and algorithms um, uh, get nationalized so, so very quickly in ways we don't really have a chance to see what, you know, positive and negative things come out of the laboratory of the States in a way that we may have in the past. So can you remember a particular time in your own experience or in your own life that like, the attention to politics started to shift from more local affairs to solely the national. Cause like, if I think about myself, when I was a younger kid, I heard people talk about local stuff, not for very long though, but I'm wondering like for you, if, if you remember some like definitive moment. That's a good question. And it's one I haven't thought about before, but it's, it is a good question. Um, immediately what popped into mind most of all was 
was 9-11, I guess. Mm -hmm. And um, especially the, well, the, the kind of double gut punch of 9-11 plus the failure of the Iraq war, I think. Uh, you know, it was hard to think about those two events in a local way. We thought about them uh, clearly on a national way. And there was good reason to do so. Um, but that coupled with the rise of the blogosphere at the time, and then not, not too long after that, the rise of social media uh, uh, and uh, cable news. Well, I guess, you know, the rise of Fox News at the time was really substantial, um, but cable news would become bifurcated or at least, you know, si siphoned off in, in, in very analogous ways to the ways we're talking about here, and ways to support the various kinds of things we're talking about here. Um, uh, but, but I do remember a time very clearly uh, before 9-11 where, uh, you know, in fact, I was proud of this. I grew up in Wisconsin um, as a Midwest Midwest boy. I still really consider myself, like the last 14 years, a Midwest boy. Um, I was very proud of uh, Wisconsin, and, and it's what I took to be as just being very different um, uh, in so many ways. Uh, from the time we were very young and learned about Wisconsin history, and we learned about the kind of progressive, yet grounded, kind of rural um way of, but, but still very heavily manufacturing. I mean, you know, we were, we, we took a kind of local pride and, and had a kind of local politics that just, okay. um, that, but, but I think especially, well, here, I'll finish this overly long answer with this one. I think with Paul before, um, as a Wisconsin guy, uh, we really, really uh, saw the kind of nationalization of Wisconsin in a way that I think especially when Paul Ryan became a national figure, but was very well known for being for being for Wisconsin and the kinds of you know um, discussions that were had on a national level, again online especially, but not only, um, you know, nationalized Wisconsin's conversation as well. Um, um, now that might have been a somewhat unique circumstance because Paul Ryan became a vice presidential candidate, became a very important leader within the Republican Party and whatnot, but. I think that's the kind of thing that um, you can see happening over and over where a formerly really interesting, really different, really, frankly, um, unique even place um, kind of got caught up and, and remains caught up. Uh, Twitter always shows me Wisconsin related tweets for some reason. I did not choose that, but their algorithm has done so. And I can just see the, you know, the, 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 the major political figures in Wisconsin just talking about the national stuff right that's that's basically how they get their raise. oh one final thing i guess to mention is that's how you raise your money too it's uh -huh. the money's yeah. not raised locally so or for the most part so if you want to get your money from planned parenthood if you want to get it from national right to life if you want to get it from american enterprise institute or wherever you want to get it from it's you're going to get it in the um in the folks who have, are interested in the nationalized conversation yeah so I mean, now that you're saying that you, it makes you see how a lot of this disconnect is not only from the breakdown of local communities, local politics, but it's also, I mean, I think breakdown of logic of the capacity to recognize nuances that probably is in large part due to the proliferation of information on the internet that, you know, like you can put anything out there and what ends up happening is that we're drawn to stuff that catches our attention and then our ability to recognize, you know, details, distinctions is, I'm just seeing more and more kind of falling apart, you know? Same. Yeah, especially when it comes to like, like you were saying, engaging with people who have a different point of view, 
it's becoming harder to recognize, hey, like this person has a different understanding, whether it's because of their upbringing, their personality, their temperament, but we can engage, we can talk about it. We can, I can try to understand their position, argue against it. Now it's this very Manichaean dualistic, like you're evil because you disagree and you don't believe these things. It's, I don't know. I wonder how much of it is like a lack of charity for your opponent or just like a kind of, I hate to say it, but a stupidity, like an inability to understand another position. I think it's both, honestly. I don't know. Yeah, I think I think it's both. And in, in, in some individuals, it might be both. But, you know, it might be both in a way that describes some people better than others. Um, you know, I think I also, I mean, here, here's something. I don't know what you think about this. I was doing some thinking in advance of our conversation. And I wonder if, if the kinds of issues that are now um, front and center are also just so foundational, right? I mean, liberalism itself is being challenged in a way that it, it wasn't before. Um, the very idea, I mean, there were some people, you know, 10, 20 years ago, um, challenging the very idea of sex and gender, um, but not many. <laughs> uh, that conversation has been mainstream now. Um, Abortion has been around for a while, obviously, and the stakes couldn't be higher when it comes to that. I guess I just wonder the proliferation of just foundational questions, right? Um, has that has that been part of this too? That um, that if 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 it's if it's sex and gender that's up for grabs, if it's the very notion of liberal government that's up for grabs, if it's um, you know prenatal justice versus the autonomy of women that's up for grabs. You know, the stakes are just that high that it's tough, right? It's tough to say, well, you know, I'm going to sit next to this person and talk to them, even though they want to destroy everything that I think is good and true about the culture. So, you know, that's that's too big, but that's too yeah. dramatic. But do you think there's something true about that, that the, especially, you know, you have your, your podcast is titled Cracks in Postmodernity. Mm-hmm. Do you think with the, the kind of deconstruction that's been going on, we we're just in a different place than we were? you know, 10, 20 years ago? That is a good point because, I mean, yeah, I mean, I see for people like, yeah, if you take abortion, if you really, really believe that, you know, they do have the right to terminate pregnancy because you perceive giving birth, carrying to term to be a really painful, heavy burden for someone to have the belief that, you know, that that being has a right to be born. um, Yeah, the stakes are higher. But, but again, it's like how how much of are the stakes? It's a matter of perception versus I don't know because if we speak economically, yeah, like I do think it's harder to carry to term to raise your child if you're going to keep it. Like it's that's a reality. But again, how much of that is like? Are we educated to understand that the child is so much of a burden? Or if we take sex and gender, like someone who doesn't fit into a gender stereotype um, to feel like you have to be forced to to be something that you're not um, can be really suffocating. But again, it's like, is it just, um, I don't know, like how much of it is the, this perception that this is who I am versus that. But that's why I think the breakdown of nuance is like for someone who doesn't fit into a gender as a gender stereotype, it's like, it's one thing to say, okay, well, now I'm the opposite sex and I'm going to transition and I'm going to change my pronouns. 
um and then the opposite of the extreme of like oh i have to act this way because society it's like where is this this nuanced middle ground where it's like okay yeah like you have certain genitals you are this gender there's room for experimentation there's room for you to like try to have an integrated sense of your own gender without having to be someone you're not it's i don't know i think it's it's a mix of a lot of factors but i i am finding myself more and more surprised by the breakdown of logic and the nuance like at least when I see people post stuff on the internet, I'm like, are you really serious about what you're saying? Like, there's this hysteria, this, I don't know, like, I do find it kind of shocking. And I wonder if, like, is it really a lack of intelligence now at this point that we're dealing with? Again, that certainly could be true in some circumstances, but I'm sure you've seen otherwise intelligent people say things that befuddle you and, and seem just, you know, almost bizarre. And how could somebody say that? And Again, I just wonder, it's, it really is a question and I'm kind of just wondering, are that because of, because of the deconstruction and because of so many institutions and foundational ideas having been, are now be, being up for grabs in a way that they weren't, uh, you know, 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, are the stakes just so high now that, um, that, that, that calls for nuance, calls for understanding arguments, calls for encountering those disagrees seem Kind of quaint right like if it's if it's a flight if everything is a flight 93 type situation um because the stakes are just so high um you know i don't i wonder or understood to be understood to be a, a mostly wrongly a, a flight 93 situation and the stakes are just so high that calls for those kind of things can just seem you know either quaint or just or even dangerous right no i mean we're not we're not going to do that it's time to act it's time to defeat the 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 enemy here yeah, so I, again, it's, it's what I was saying before about this need to fill this existential vacuum, but at least with the in the American context, I'm seeing more and more of this like near puritanical anxiety to prove your moral worth, your moral superiority. Like people are so afraid to be on the wrong side. So we must, we must virtue signal or else like we are evil, we're bad. And it's like, that moral anxiety there's something true there like there is a real desire to to pursue what is good but again the fact that it's so disintegrated from our everyday lives like yeah turns into this hysteria that's the main thing i think is so important if you live a culture of encounter with the local with 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 the folks with with a with a diverse group of people it's much easier to see that it's not a flight 93 situation yeah and uh yeah so yeah so i mean now i just i want to go a little bit more into the content of this breakdown of the you know the left right duopoly binary um because in a lot of the stuff you've been writing you're showing how these i guess these stereotypical stereotypical views we have of the categories left and right like now it's just kind of becoming a blur like you know you see people who are typically are aligned with the left now have values that some people will consider right and all that so i think one of the main markers that we're seeing i mean you've written this i see other authors saying this is that a lot of it has to do with college education like people who go to college get a degree tend to have a career or either nah i don't know because of temperament or because of um conditioning see the world a particular way um, and that shapes, you know, whatever party they align themselves with. But you've also been saying a lot about just working class people, especially immigrants, people of color, and how, you know, typically would be seen aligned with the the left. 
not really fitting so much into the Democratic Party's platform. Um, so can you say more just about that shift that you're seeing, especially amongst the working class, people of color, immigrants? Yeah, I mean, one, one real uh, dramatic um, issue that I think just illustrates this almost perfectly is that of assisted suicide. Uh -huh. So um, like many so-called social issues, uh, people of color, and especially the economically vulnerable and especially economically vulnerable people of color tend to be more quote unquote conservative on those issues. Though again, I'm not sure what these terms even really refer to at the end of the day, but, um, and that's very true of assisted suicide and not least because people of color, especially blacks have had such a horrible experience with the US healthcare system. Um, and to the point where I was shocked to learn even if just a few years ago that uh, a good that so many privileged whites think of at the end of life, something like hospice, is really looked at with deep skepticism in black communities, okay. for, for precisely because they're so distrustful with good reason um, for how they're treated at the end of life by the medical community. Now, um, what we, uh, and, and often the reasons that are given for this are religious, um, but not always. Uh, uh, they often, just as often, maybe even have to do with um, more secular values that include, you know, um, you know, a kind of anti-ableism, a sense that all all human beings matter the same, regardless of their age or their ability to be productive or uh, contribute to society or something. Um, on the other hand, uh, and so that their their opposition is often, uh, you know, what we might consider left, right, or or progressive in terms of how they think about. Uh, anti-ableism, anti-violence, concern for the most vulnerable, worries about structures, right? So it's not just about um, an individual case or an individual person, but what kind of structures are, are put in place as a result of a policy. So even if you might think in the abstract that it's right um, for a particular individual, you also, if you're a good progressive, you think about what structures are created and, and how those structures impact the most vulnerable, especially. Um, on the other hand, those who tend to be uh, in favor of physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia tend to identify more with the left, but they tend to, um, and again, not clear what these terms mean, but um, they, they tend to be uh, very, you know, um, they tend to use concepts and approaches that are, that are identified with, again, who knows what these terms mean, but the right or conservatives uh, or at least libertarians, right? So, um, you know, this is my body, uh, I get to do whatever I want with this, I'm an individual, no one can really tell me what I can do with this. Um, you know, there's a lot of different points of view on this question, we should let a thousand flowers bloom, the government should kind of stay out of it. Um, uh, and let's give priority to the individual uh, who's, who's acting in his or her own interest uh, here. Uh, and that, that even happens at the academy. That happens in, in, in bi at bioethics conferences all the time. People who otherwise identify as very progressive end up making, you know, sounding like Rand Paul or something on, uh, on, on this particular issue. And so while this is one particular issue where it just fits so perfectly, there's just a number of issues that are, that are like this. And, and Trump's rise, I think, has, has maybe, um, uh, you know, made, made that even more clear than it was before. I mean, we got a bunch of people who are identified with Republicans or the right now who are for tariffs, right? And, and those kind of interventions overseas that used to be anathema to the right. Um, and especially during Trump's presidency, though it's changed a little bit during the Biden administration, but during Trump's presidency, uh, they, you got all these folks on the left saying, no, this is bad, we should not do this, right? Let's have free markets and let's have 
um, let's have these uh, agreements that uh, many people think is really hurt the working class and but benefits the overall kind of utilitarian calculation of GDP or something like that. So, um, so, be, so just even back to the original point from your very first question, just a moment's reflection about these questions really, really destroys any concept that there could be a kind of like a right or a left kind of position on these things. They just don't fit. They don't work. They get scrambled all the time. Uh, and and we, it's, I, I've used an analogy to um, how a kind of Ptolemaic um, vision of the universe, right, with a, yeah. with a geocentric universe would think about stars that didn't appear to behave as they were supposed to be behaving if, those, if the Earth was the center. Um, they would imagine that these stars had something called epicycles that would, you know, they would kind of move around in a circle to, to help explain why their geocentric uh, Ptolemaic kind of vision of the universe was correct. I, I, something, I, I often feel like something analogous is happening here. We tell ourselves these stories. We, we um, imagine certain things are this way or that way just to fit with this model that we've, that we've created for ourselves. But real, what really needs to go is the model. Uh, we just need to stop talking as if there is like a right and a left and, and just be much more nuanced and careful and inclusive about the kinds of you know, structures we create when we talk about these things. Yeah, I mean, I'm really struck by the cognitive dissonance that I'm seeing, um, especially when it comes to like economic versus cultural life issues, because as you're saying, like, you have these quote unquote Republican conservatives all about life, right to life, etc. The economic policies really don't reflect this attitude towards life, life as a gift, instead are falling to these very pragmatic utilitarian views of you know, material resources and then the same on the other side that this kind of radical individualism um, really is playing into this idea that I don't know like we're, we're these atomized individuals and that ultimately what matters is I guess the will to power the you know it, and like when you talk about the consistent life ethic that these things are all integrated it's like people are so fixated on being on a certain side that we're not actually thinking through what is like the logical consequence of my position. And is it integrated with all the other aspects of, of life, of society? Um, and I, I think you said this in the intro, the resisting throwaway culture, that these platforms are determined by corporate interests. Like people, people aren't sitting and thinking through like, again, what are the consequences of this position? Is this coherent? It's like, no, somebody makes a platform based on what's economically most prudent for them and then people just buy into it blindly um again like is it a moral problem that people are too lazy to do the work of thinking through it is it a lack of intelligence i don't know but i just i find the cognitive dissonance to be really striking at times let me say two things about that the yeah. first is um and i've lived this personally it's it's hard uh if you want to be effective on the national level especially and it's even harder if you want to be effective with, um, you know, getting grant money or getting a donor to help. If you explicitly reject these categories and these ways of, of approaching this, because so much of the money, so much as you mentioned, the corporate, um, but not only the corporate, uh, you know, just just folks who have money who are looking to donate to someone, you kind of have to say, well, you know, I'm, I agree with you about this, but this other thing that you stand for, really, I'm not for that. You know, in fact, I'm working against it in a certain way. So it's really hard, frankly, to work in the current structures the way they're set up um, with this thing in mind. And, and even, and I'm, I'm speaking from my own experience there, but if I can also speak from my own experience about what I've 
discussed with others um, about this fairly high placed people. I used to be on the board of Democrats for life and I would sometimes go on the Hill lobbying for various things. Like I would um, most recently, uh, the, 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 the last one I think was for trying to get funding for perinatal hospice, trying to help uh, women and babies and families who were dealing with a very difficult prenatal diagnosis and mm-hmm. give them an option to care and love for the child through pregnancy and after pregnancy without causing them any pain. Uh, uh, you would get, I got to tell you, Stephen, you would get uh, Republicans who would say, who would say, you know what, I'm personally, I have to tell you, I'm personally for this kind of, um, uh, you know, social justice kind of oriented. Um, you were saying the Republicans and the social justice, they're personally for it. Yeah, so, you know, they would give their version of what they really thought, right? And they said, you know, I'm personally for more funding for perinatal hospice. I'm personally for uh, funding nursing homes at a different level. I'm personally for um, paid family leave. Uh, but the structures are such that I can't, the political structure is such that I can't do that publicly. I can't publicly mm-hmm. come out for those things. And also, um, uh, also on the so-called left, again, so-called right, so-called left, um, we talked with a lot of Democrats who would, not just pro-life Democrats, uh, who there were some more at the time, um, but pro-choice Democrats would say, you know what, I think, I, you know, I could get behind 20 weeks, 15 weeks um, as a restriction. We were trying to propose, like, could we, could we do a kind of like a, brand, a grand bargain where we had a 15, 20 week ban plus a lot of social support for women. And again, like if you talk to these folks and their staff, they would be personally for these things, but you know, the structures were such, the political expectations and structures were such that, that they couldn't um, publicly support them. And so even at the very highest levels of Congress, uh, senators and, and representatives, uh, there was the there were these personal nuances. There were people who said, you know what, let's stop talking about epicycles and this nonsense to, you know, I don't fit into this right, left, life choice binary. Um, but nevertheless, they were bound, um, I think mostly because of fundraising, uh, but, 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 but also because of some of the other things we've been talking about um, to, to kind of toe the line and, and play, play the epicycle game, even, even though they knew it wasn't true. Even, even if, not only did they know it wasn't true, they, they explicitly told me they believe something different. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, in a second, I'm, I wanna ask you more about what you're seeing happening, at least on the, the side of the Republican party. But no, I did wanna mention first, at least with um, the kind of ideological approach to social justice, you know, you, you wrote in this article, um, about all these, the criticism that Archbishop Gomez was getting about his quote-unquote anti-woke letter. Um, It was interesting because I'm seeing that right now, this kind of post-structure, I mean, I don't don't know, like, I don't want to call it woke because it's it's a bogeyman in itself, but ultimately it's this post-structuralist approach to social issues that right now I feel like has a monopoly on, on social justice activism. Uh, to the point that anyone who doesn't espouse this post-structuralist worldview is not on the right side. You're on the wrong side. So someone like the Archbishop who's saying, yeah, like post-structuralism does purport to be this totalizing worldview, which is what a religion does. Um, yeah, like it's it's problematic. Not that it's all evil and horrible, but it's, yeah, we definitely need to question it. Um, people are coming at him saying like, oh, you're racist and you're this and that. And, uh, and you point out in the article that He's done anti-racist work, 
So it's on, on one side, at least within like the religious context, I do think that these post-structuralists are filling in a vacuum that the churches, that the religious institutions have created because of a lack of being involved in offering a real, you know, at least with the Catholic church, like offering a real Catholic response to these social issues. So like that, that's one thing to consider. But on the other hand, it's like, why is it, why is it that we're at this point where there can only be one way to approach these social issues? Why is there this monopoly, especially, I mean, you would know being in the university setting, like it's this post-structuralist worldview, this post-modern worldview, like this is it. Like you, if you don't have this approach, then like we can't have a conversation. So uh, I really do think there are some well-meaning people uh, amongst the post-structuralist slash woke, whatever category, um, successor ideology people who are, who, like you said, filling a void, filling a, a gap that especially the church has, um, has left open uh, here, or at least the church of the United States okay. has left open here. Yeah. But uh, like you said, as a, as a member of the academy, I, I must admit <laughs> uh, being somewhat cynical um, and skeptical, frankly, about uh, what, what I often hear coming about uh, from, from a lot of these folks, because um, the stuff uh, that I hear doesn't often reflect the actual views of the marginalized populations they claim to, um, to stand for yeah. and, and to be speaking for. So if you just go back to the example I was using earlier on, on um, end of life issues and euthanasia and, phys and physician assisted suicide, um, you know, a, a racial justice analysis, structural racism, uh, looking at how structural racism has played a role in medicine and end of life issues, would come to a very different conclusion than the one that the vast majority of, you know, so-called woke folks in the academy come to on that issue, right? Um, something very similar could be said about abortion. Uh, you do a, a racial justice analysis of how abortion has come to be and come to be used and come to work its way into our communities. Um, you come to a very different conclusion about abortion than the one that's broadly shared in the academy. So what do you do with all this? Well, again, I do think there are some true believers, some well-meaning people who are trying to work with something that's difficult. Um, I do think, though, to speak frankly, there are some who are just using it as a way of advancing a very different kind of agenda. And that's what... Um, I think Archbishop Gomez was really interested in pushing back on, right? To the extent that this is not about, uh, you know, people of color and, and structural racism, uh, it is often geared at a very, against a very traditional vision of Christianity, often held by the very people who are supposedly being lifted up, right? Um, uh, and that's what, I, that's what frustrates me, that's what frustrates him, that's what frustrates so many people who are all in for racial justice but who can't be all in with the kind of post-structural woke whatever successor ideology stuff because frankly that it's not it's often not about what it claims to be about i think you know i try to do my best to not um offer you know what i think are the actual motivations of people because it can really break down dialogue and discussion yeah. in, in, in difficult ways but at a certain point it just becomes so evident you have to call it out and, and say it's a problem and uh yeah. and this is a problem yeah i mean Personally, for me, like I, I find post-structuralism to be interesting within a contained kind of context. Like it raises super important questions, but it's not capable of becoming an all-encompassing vision of reality. 
which again is the role of a religion like it it's not capable of it and when people create this kind of at least in academic settings like give it this monopoly it's like it's not capable of doing what you're trying to make it do and then what ends up happening as you said like if we're going to use it to advocate for historically oppressed communities what do we do with the fact that their worldview tends to be very different from this worldview of very bourgeois french intellectuals in in the sorbonne like it's they're living in two very different worlds so like sure again it can raise important questions about the condition of the oppressed but at what point do we realize like people immigrants people of color people coming from the developing world like see the world very differently and if what concerns me most is when you start at least within university setting like when you start to impose this worldview on people coming from those backgrounds like this is you know pope francis says this it's this ideological colonization um which ends up defeating the whole point of you know the social justice kind of concerns like you end up oppressing the poor if not materially then at least existentially spiritually you know that's absolutely right that's that's absolutely right and 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 um you know if if a person of color in the academy or as a student in a, cl a class even wants to speak up against um the kind of orthodoxy that's enforced along these lines they will themselves consider you know be considered themselves a, um, by others a kind of race traitor right a kind of um uh you know uh, disloyal not not a member of the cause um and can you imagine if that's the kind of thing you're up against in as a structure in, in higher education of course you're going to be pushed to toe the company line of course you're going to be saying the things that um don't rock the boat and that are expected of you. Uh, but but I don't need to tell you, I mean, we were um, on the same Bronx campus together, the kinds of discussions that were going on there versus the ones that were happening just outside our very well-guarded walls were just like in two different universes, right? They're just not, not even remotely co uh, compatible. But if you stepped onto the campus, you were expected uh, to, I think it's fair to say, largely expected to speak a very, a very um, insulated, um, uh, again, orthodox, orthodoxy, a kind of uh, set of positions that weren't to be challenged. Um, but again, uh, if we take the views of vulnerable people of color seriously, um, who are, again, disproportionately religious very and disproportionately traditionally religious, um, we just end up in a far more nuanced place, a far more interesting place, a far more, um, you know, a, a place that could actually open itself up, <laughs> frankly, to discussion and debate and um, and the challenging of orthodoxy, which is where um, higher education, at least in theory, is supposed to be. So that 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 is so that is the thing that is most frustrating for me at all. I, you know, what what kinds of conversations are missed um, when when the kind of orthodoxy that's enforced is in fact enforced? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I can I can at least say it about the institution we were at. Um, I found interesting the fact that at least the Jesuits take hands-on social justice work or at least charitable work seriously and afforded students many opportunities and i remember going on a kind of mission service trip to another country and one of the tenets of our like what is it i don't know like our our kind of program is spirituality very vaguely defined and no one on this this in this group was particularly religious most of them some said they were marxist some were you know just whatever um 
And I remember when we were at the service trip, like we were building a house and we were interacting with the local community and they were all super religious, either very Catholic or Pentecostal. And the reaction of my classmates was very um, like politely condescending, like, oh, it's so cute that they like, they have a procession with the Mary statue, all these old ladies, that's so sweet. Or like, oh, you know, they still believe in that stuff. Oh, that's cute. Um, but, you know, one day they're going to see that they're being oppressed by this patriarchal system that's, you know, controlling them. <laughs> so it's like, it's funny on one hand that you see this elitist, very bourgeois mentality coming out from people who have really good intentions. But also what gave me hope is that like, we were interacting with people in a developing country with this very theistic worldview. Yeah. Um, so at least having that hands-on interaction gives them something concrete to think about now when they're trying to do this advocacy, even if their way of construing, you know, the worldview of these people is kind of messed up. Um, so it's it's just a testament to the fact that like those who do have a concern with social issues, the best way to do it is be involved with the people, learn exactly. from the people you want to advocate from. Exactly. Yeah. Well said. But, yeah. But anyway, so no, I, I do want to talk a little bit more because you've written about the shift within the Republican Party conservatism in the U.S. Um, what do you see as the future of the GOP? What do you think could happen or should happen there? Well, I guess it, it you know, it's tough to answer that question because in, in some ways a big part of what we've done over the last 40 minutes or whatever it's been is is even just trouble the very notion of the GOP itself. Like what is a Republican, <laughs> right? I, I'm not even sure post-Trump what that category, what the content of that category is, um, to be honest. Uh, you know, there's, it's a slightly more, I mean, there isn't even a, there is not even a platform now for the party. Um, it's slightly, it's slightly more clear what it means to be a Democrat, but even there, there's so much diversity. There's so much, again, you know, if you have um, a traditional uh, Christian black uh, woman from South Carolina who voted for Joe Biden, right, in the, in the primary and, and saved Joe Biden actually um, in the primary uh, this last time around, that's gonna be a very, very different Democrat than, um, somebody who's going to go to an academic conference uh, in our world. So, uh, you know, again, what, what do we even mean by by a Republican or the GOP is, is up for grabs in a significant way? That said, I mean, there is a party, there are people in the party, there are power structures in the party, and, um, and they do seem to be more open to uh, kind of, you know, focus on government, not, not the way that the Democrats are necessarily, but quite different from you know, I grew up in the Reagan era where the government that governs best is the government that governs least, right? Um, you know, they may not be for $6 trillion, but they might be for a trillion dollars, right, for a particular program. Or they might not be for student loan forgiveness, but they're definitely for student loans. Or they're, uh, you know, they might not be for um, uh, paid family leave uh, coming from the federal government, but they'd be for, as Michael, Marco Rubio is, um, allowing people to take uh, uh, time off the end of their social security and use it during their pregnancy or soon after they give birth. Uh -huh. um, they might not be for a single payer healthcare system, but 
uh, at least a lot of the folks who identify with the right that I talk to are definitely for some creative um, arrangement where families are allowed to care for their elderly loved ones at home rather than in nursing homes. And if that means Medicaid and Medicare reimbursed for that or something, then that's what that means. Or they're open to creative conversations about that. So it's, it's way, way more interesting and complicated than it was during the Reagan administration and even during the time when Paul Ryan was kind of calling the shots. Um, with Trump, again, we just have a very different, um, we have a very, very different party to the extent there is even a single party that's coherent. And, and then finally, let me say, the abortion uh, decision in Dobbs has really caused a number of, of pro-lifers who would identify as, you know, who even maybe came of age during the, the, the Reagan years, um, to re cause them to rethink a lot of this and to say, you know, maybe there are things um, that we can do uh, on the level of government to support women and families. Um, and, and those conversations are ongoing. I'm in the middle of some of them myself. In fact, there's gonna be a, I think I'm, I'm, I am part of a, a, a group of people that are gonna try to come up with a document that says, in light of Dobbs, we're open to, you know, as conservatives, we're open to these kinds of social justice interventions. Um, and we, you know, the, the final document is not done, but, and that will be circulated. And I wouldn't be surprised if that document gets a lot of signatures that are gonna surprise people. Uh -huh. um, so it's in flux and that's actually a good thing, it seems to me, uh, where, it, where it ends up. Um, again, acknowledging the content of it is, is also for grabs. Uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure, but, but it's gonna be much, it already is better than it was, you know, when I was growing up and um, I hope it continues in the trajectory it's on. Yeah, and I definitely think it's interesting as you're saying, and as you know, you've written that you have these figures like Marco Rubio, even Tucker, who are, you know, very critical of socialist kind of policies, but also critical of capitalism and rampant capitalism, as you said. Like, it, uh, there is some hope for new, these nuanced positions that, you know, don't veer to an extreme, so really look at the real concrete needs of the people. Um, but the other thing I was going to ask is about third parties, because, I mean, you got a lot of attention when you, you know, publicly left the Democratic Party and went with the American Solidarity Party, um, which, you know, has a very distinctively Christian, Catholic, social teaching kind of basis, based platform. Um, what do you say to people who think voting third party is a wasted vote? Yeah. yeah. Uh... I mean, for some, it might be a wasted vote. If you have views that are different than mine, I can imagine somebody saying that it is a wasted vote. Um, but it, if you're in at least, I can imagine a person with two different uh, two different kinds of folks thinking that it, maybe they'd be open to this, but they think it's maybe it's wasted, but they're open to hearing something different. So if if you think that the duopoly, the, the kind of antagonistic binary opposition that we have um, is the foundational problem here, right? If the foundational problem is we're operating as if we're in a geocentric universe and we need to fundamentally shake that up um, before really anything else can 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 really happen, um, then this is the way to do that, right? And and to do that in a way that calls to mind before the Civil War, right? There were especially before the Civil War, there were all kinds of parties that would come and go. It's highly um, unusual. I mean, the, our founders and the first you know, century of, of Americans, US Americans would find it very strange that we're in this kind of situation where there are only 
these two parties. In fact, and in fact, let's just be honest, we have had very similar kinds of shifts, but we pretend we just kind of use these placeholder names to, okay. to describe what comes next, just because again, we're, we're creating, we're, it's kind of the epicycle approach. We just pretend that this is the way it is. We have had the Whigs change the Republicans, right? Or the know nothings come and go, but we've just decided to not, to pretend that that's not the case by shoving them into these other categories. And, and honest people do say, well, there's, there's a republic there's a republican coalition and, and there's kind of these three parties within it or whatever but in the in the main we don't think of that as as the way uh, things work um, in the united states but okay. but if you so so here but then here's another so the first group would be so folks who say we need to jettison geo our equivalent of geocentrism before anything else can get done the, then the next and second kind of um person I imagine would be somebody who thinks that the that I would, rightly I would say that the two parties are just so utterly evil in the things that they support that it would be um, you know kind of compromise of your values to, to put your vote behind uh, one party or the other um, and, and and so that would be another reason I think to say well you know a pox on both your houses essentially so um, yeah, it's it's not a vote, obviously, for the American Solidarity Party to win the presidency in 2024, but it's a vote um, for the future, as it were. Mm, have you looked at Kanye West's birthday party platform? <laughs> I've heard of it, and I think mm -hmm. I even I think I did glance at it once because I wrote up a piece on him uh, around that time. Uh, but so the answer is yes, but I'm not sure I remember that much except finding it interesting it's a pretty good platform i i mean i think if the democrats were smart they would they would put him as the candidate because i yeah i don't know i mean it's not realistic but the platform itself was really good like integrated a lot of a lot of um just focus on like black communities but with the, within this kind of christian worldview which i was impressed by i don't know if he actually came up with it but <laughs> worth yeah. considering, considering um but no so now kind of to wrap things up i do want to talk about roe i do want to trigger people um yeah so i have this very skeptical millennial kind of attitude towards what's going on because uh, let me just give a disclaimer to anyone who's listening I'm open to any people's positions blah 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 safe space whatever um yeah I mean I think that in an ideal world every being should exist should be valued um but we don't live in an ideal world we don't live in an ideal culture um the belief that a fetus and not fully developed life form should exist like this requires a real understanding of human nature like it, to really understand that life is a gift that in any in any condition in any you know phase of its existence um first of all like is the system the economic system but also like the moral the moral framework of this nation capable of sustaining such an idea such a, a law um that's first what i'm skeptical of like i i really do think this is primarily a culture of death so like if we're gonna have a, a law that really recognizes the dignity of every life especially a life that's not fully developed um it's different i don't know like should we have that law that's one question is it sustainable that's what i'm concerned about um 
I don't know, so what do you say to that? Like, do you, do you think that this kind of law, like if all the states were to ban abortion completely, is it sustainable? I mean, I'm not, I'm not sure what sustainable means in that context. I, mm -hmm. I, um, I, I think you know very well that um, like New York and California are, are bastions of abortion rights and, and will, it's hard to imagine a possible world um, in the next 10 to 20 years where they become something different than that. Um, I don't know what you think about Ireland, but um, up until fairly recently, they had in their constitution explicit support for prenatal justice mm -hmm. and fantastic um, outcomes for women, health outcomes for women. Yeah, yeah, there were some Irish that went to you know the UK and Germany for abortions and whatnot, but for the most part, they really did make a commitment to supporting women and 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 treating all human beings as equal, including prenatal human beings. Um, you know, that's not a culture that different from ours, right? Um, mm -hmm. So, uh, I mean, I guess I just think, uh, you know, uh, yes, it's sustainable, and um, and uh, there are some places that are states that are kind of doing this right now. So. And there are frankly some states who've basically had, even though abortion was legal for some time now, years, if not decades, have had virtually no abortions because there haven't there have been like one or two abortion clinics in the whole in the whole state. Um, and a lot of very few people wanted to do abortions in states like South uh, Dakota or Alabama. So um, and those societies did not collapse. They did not have um, you know, a kind of unraveling. Again, I'm not sure what you mean by sustainable there. Now if you're pointing to the fact that a lot of states that are going to ban abortion it's probably better i like to talk about a positive trends protect prenatal justice um don't have a consistent view of of human dignity i agree with that like that is just totally the case but that was true of, of almost every polity that that in, starts you know including human beings that um weren't included in, in the circle of protection before um mm -hmm. you know so it's a journey. It's a. It's a. We're we're hopefully bending towards justice here, um, uh, but it's not perfect, obviously, and um, and there's more work to do, and so yes, there will be states that uh, that protect prenatal justice but have the death penalty, and that's terrible. There will also be states that um, you know have a really significant social safety net. Uh, for immigrants like California, but are basically havens of prenatal violence and dismembering of children simply because they're disabled. That is that are that's equally horrible, right? It's a cognitive and and moral distance that is just almost omnipresent. But that doesn't mean we don't work for progress. That doesn't mean we don't try um, to have a coherent view of of human dignity and of social justice and of nonviolence. Um, but I guess I do. Chile is another country that I point to sometimes. They they banned most abortion a few years ago, and they've actually seen a rise in their maternal health um, um, outcomes, of an improvement. Yeah. So um, when I think of places like Ireland and Chile and Poland and a few other places, you know, I, I do think it's sustainable, yeah. Yeah, and again, like when I say sustainable, I'm thinking first on a kind of a basic material financial level, but then the moral, cultural level is what intrigues me most because when I see especially women go into hysterics about this who really feel themselves to be so threatened 
by the potential of losing you know access to abortion it's like what is going to enable a person to recognize that this heavy I'm not going to call it a burden, but it, it's a it's a drama. Like to bring life into the world is a dramatic thing. Whether you think it's a burden, whether you think it's a gift, okay. But I feel like this question of educating someone, uh, accompanying someone to recognize this drama as a gift, even a painful gift, like that's a huge work. And I just wonder, like, is it time? Like, can we enact such laws without first doing that work of educating people? to experience life in this way? Is it prudent to, you know, take away abortion access or to however we want to phrase it? Like, I just, I don't know, like I see especially young people who are freaking out right now. And I'm like, I see why you're freaking out. I'm not freaking out because I see that life is a gift, even though yes, it implies a drama and sacrifice. I, but I want people to see that too. And I just wonder like, I just, the law is not enough. To educate someone to see life this way yeah no that's that's a real concern um i will say that there's almost always freaking out when a, a new um a new kind of regime trying to protect vulnerable people with the law does that and if, especially yeah. if it threatens the power and security and um even safety let's be honest of of, of certain other groups um that's historically not unusual. Um, that doesn't mean we don't take it seriously and, and, mm -hmm. and, and, and do the best we can to, to say, for instance, and not enough pro-lifers have done this, it seems to me, though we're really up against a, a, a media which is invested in scaring people, frankly. Yeah. Um, we are not doing enough to say, um, you know, look at places like Ireland and Chile, we can protect prenatal justice and protect women at the same time and protect and support women at the same time. There's no inherent contradiction between that at all. Uh, in fact, it's often women. Who, every single major pro-life organization in the country is led by a woman. The most uh, strong pro-lifers I know are women, especially young pro-lifers are women. Um, some of the most aggressively uh, pro-choice people I know are men. Um, yeah. um, we've done a lot of uh, you know, pathologizing of pregnancy uh, and of women's bodies, frankly. Um, in ways that fit that kind of patriarchal approach to all of this. Um, and, uh, and, and that's been done on, with, by people who are very cynically manipulating uh, the, the narrative, right? For their, for, to try to get the kind of abortion policy they want. Um, but, but, but we don't have to pathologize pregnancy or women's bodies. We don't have to choose between protecting babies and supporting women and making sure women are healthy. It's, it's 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 been proven already that we can um, uh, have both, and and in point of fact, it, you know these states are going to do what what they're going to do. So states that are dominated by people who are more afraid um, are going to have a very different kind of law than states that are really trying to, um, you know, that are not, not so afraid. And and women and young women will be a part of both of those uh, polities, right? Both kinds of polities. Um, the internet, of course, is a place that's dominated by the left and by people with certain kinds of views on these questions. So it, we don't always get the maybe a good cross section in the United States from that. Mm. Does anyone have a right to life, though? I mean, I'm, I'm, I mean, like rights discourse, like 
is it like i don't know i find that discourse to be super not compelling yeah i mean i think it's certainly not theologically um, well it has its theological problems to be sure um but that's kind of what we're dealing with in a way as well um mm -hmm. But if, if anyone has a right to life, uh, it's certainly those who are vulnerable and voiceless, dependent, mm -hmm. uh, who uh, need someone to speak up on their own, uh, in their own uh, defense, on the defense of another. Um, again, I, I, I think there are theological problems that way, but, um, but yeah. Yeah, because I, what I see inevitably coming up is that like, if, prenatal life has a right to exist what about the rights of everybody else it's like i just feel like rights discourse it's built to lead to these oppositions these clashes whereas if i don't know we're educated to view these things as a matter of givenness gifts then like it's harder to it's harder for these to this thing for it to be a conflict when it's like okay something's given and i'm being asked to receive something if it's rights, then I don't know. I just naturally don't like, instinctively don't like rights discourse. But it's, that's the world we live in. That's how we talk. Yeah, yeah it's it, it implicitly plays into this power dynamic that we've been mentioning throughout. Um, you know, a, a right is a claim. It's a claim on someone else often, and um, and this is what we have. And the church has used it, <laughs> and for better or for worse. Uh, but I'm with you. I think um, I think it can. Uh, hide more than it reveals much of the time yeah well um any last thoughts uh before we wrap up any last things you want to put out there before we go no, i think i think rather than talking about rights you can talk about human dignity and um, seeing the image of god and all human beings and uh to the extent that we do that um the kinds of things we've been talking about the last hour or so just go much better. So and yeah. I'm, I'm saying this to remind myself as much as anyone, right? There's um, these, every single person you encounter, even those that have um, views that are so abhorrent to you, um, bear the image likeness of God in a way that demands that we bow before it, right? And, um, and, and if we can, especially as Christians, if we can keep that in the front of mind, all these things go so, so much better yeah i think that's a good question or a challenge to leave people with can you recognize something of value something uh the dignity of the person whose views you disagree with the most i think it's uh, an important work that we all should try to do so um anything you want to plug before we go uh i have a new book coming out in november called one church which will yes. build almost um exactly on that insight. Uh, I mean, it goes a little bit further and talks about baptism as the kind of, uh, if we saw our baptism as the primary way we relate to each other, rather than these, um, you know, idolatrous, uh, you know, foci on, on ideology and politics, national politics, especially, again, these things would go much better. Um, so we'll see if, if, you know, I'm tilting at windmills here a little bit, but uh, I still believe, I guess, that, um, that maybe we could prioritize um, our brothers and sisters in Christ in a way that breaks through those kind of idolatrous uh, uh, ways of viewing the world. Nice. All right. Well, so with that, Charlie, thank you for coming on. This was good. Thank you, Steve.